anything you say about the value of what you've just shown them will be far more powerful if we can get our prospect to say it, our prospect to articulate it, which is where questions come in. We can say, so this feature could help your world in X, Y, and Z way. But if we can ask them a question to get them to specifically articulate it, to articulate how they see this feature living and breathing and helping their world, then it will stick. Then the value is, is, is clearer in their mind and they'll be better at communicating it internally when there are other stakeholders as well. Yeah. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Jordana Zeldin and Jonathan Mann, and they are the co-founders of The Practice Lab, which is a sales training program for B2B AEs to help them develop their skills like, like athletes. Developing skills in practice, not during games, or in practice and not on buyers and prospects. So it leads into our overall conversation about training and practice. And one of the big questions we tackle is, are salespeople overtrained? Yes, yes, you heard me correctly, overtrained and underpracticed and that sellers struggle to apply what they learn in training when they're dealing with their buyers. We also talk about whether sellers are trained on the wrong things. I mean, we keep pouring knowledge into sellers, but are we training them sufficiently on the human skills that the ones that buyers tell us are the ones that make a difference to them when they make their decisions. So we get to all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Jordana and Jonathan, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. And let's jump into it. Jordana, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Or sh I should say, welcome back, Jordana. Welcome, Jonathan. <laughs> it's your first time on the show. Yes, happy to be here. Good to have you here. So, um... I don't know. Jonathan, you take it this time because Jordana did it last time. Tell us about you and and what you do. Yeah, for sure. So Jordana and I are co-founders of the Practice Lab. And you know, at a high level, the Practice Lab is a place where B2B sales professionals can come to practice their selling skills in the same sorts of ways that performers, athletes, musicians practice their skills which is through deep, focused, deliberate practice, the kind of practice where you take the whole performance, break it down into its component parts, and really focus on mastering and owning that particular part of the process until it becomes second nature. And then, of course, come performance time, you can put it all together beautifully because you spent all that time preparing in advance with practice. Okay. So uh, what were you doing in your career before you got to this point? Yeah, so I've been selling for the last decade, um, the last four or five years in you know, B2B SaaS sales. And uh, it's interesting, that actually kind of led to the practice life being created. So uh, in the beginning of 2021, I started a new sales job. And during the process of onboarding, it was really three things happened that really led to the creation of this business. So in the mornings, I would be watching onboarding videos. And the training I got was really good. They taught us on all the right behaviors, the right questions, good sales methodologies, how to run our sales calls. It was great training. Then in the afternoons, I would listen to recordings of my peers, right? And hear what they were doing in real sales calls. And there was almost no overlap between what we were being trained and what was happening in the wild. People mm -hmm. were not asking good questions. People were not following the process. People were not handling objections effectively or talking about price in a way that made sense or anything like that that we were being taught. And it really reminded me that there's a big gap in any discipline between intellectually understanding a behavior and knowing what you should be doing and actually having the skill set needed to pull it off in the wild. And the third thing that was happening at the same time is in the evenings I was reading a book called Peak, 
and later a book called The Talent Code. And both those books are by researchers who have spent decades studying top performers across disciplines to figure out how the best become the best. And in all of those disciplines, from acting to chess playing to music, there's this focus on deliberate practice, right? As I described just mm-hmm. a minute ago. And as I read that book, I was like, well, shoot, why don't we do that in sales? And I actually realized that for myself to become the kind of seller I wanted to be, I would need practice in order to close the gap between what I knew and what I could actually do on a real call. So I kind of initially started the practice lab as just like some sessions me and my colleagues at this company would do together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then it, and then pretty soon I brought Jordana into the mix and we started offering it to kind of the, the, the wider world. And she, with her background in sales training, was able to really turn this little idea I had into a real you know, effective offering and effective approach. And she really was the one who had the, the business sense to realize too, that this could be more than just a hobby I do on Thursday afternoons, right? This could actually be a business for us. So over the last 18 months or so, we've been slowly growing what started as just you know, bonus sessions that I needed to upscale and really turning it into a business. Okay. I like it. I mean, so Jordan, uh, Jordana, um, yeah. Introduce yourself. Oh God. Yeah. So I'm, I, I run this, this business with Jonathan and, and I also, I mean, I, prior to my life in selling, I was in the art world and directing theater and mentoring and uh, representing emerging artists. But I, I kind of tripped and fell into sales when I got a job at an art a technology company that just needed people who mm. could speak the language of the art world to sell to gallerists. So I hopped into um, to the company Artsy as a seller. Very, very soon after, realized how much more joy I got from coaching and empowering other people to kick ass and and kind of find their own voice as <clears throat> sellers. And I did my own sales wins. Right. Um, coaching and mentoring has been just a big part of my life all throughout. And uh, I decided to pivot from being a seller to a sales coach. And what's interesting is that my first sales coaching job officially was at a company that took a very practice-based approach. And that was when I first kind of woke up to the idea of how effective it is in sales training. And kind of like once I once I saw it and once I learned how to practice coach, it's like you, I couldn't unsee it. I couldn't unsee its effectiveness. And I was reading the talent code. And I mean, Jonathan and I kind of simultaneously were were thinking these thoughts and 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 wanting to put our brains and, and hearts on the practice case at the same time. It's a little serendipitous that he reached out to me when he did. Um, but, yeah. but now we are, we are like eating, sleeping and, and breathing this practice thing, both uh, from the perspective of how powerful it can be for skills, sales skill development, but also what an incredible um, kind of container it creates for people to show up as themselves in progress, mm-hmm. supporting one another as human beings. So let's, let's dive into this idea of practice because, yeah, it's, I don't know, you use an analogy with, with theater is, you know, if you're rehearsing a play, I mean, the, it's foreordained uh, how the person you're, you're doing a scene with is going to react, right? I mean, you, you, have the, you have the script. How do you replicate, you know, real world conditions because... You know, you're not practicing on an actual buyer. Yeah. You know, it's a fantastic question. I think that question there probably is at the at the core of why more teams don't practice. They kind of run up into this issue of like, well, you can't script it out, right? You can't reenact what's going to happen because real sales cars are wildly unpredictable. Um, and right. kind of to answer that, I would direct your attention to other disciplines where performance time is unpredictable and see how they still use practice. So improv comedians is a great one, right? Mm -hmm. 
improv comedians very much spend a lot of time practicing, but of course, when they get up there, no one knows what's going to happen. But with improv comedians, they focus on developing their brain to be quicker thinkers, to better understand, you know, comedy, to better be better linguists with, with their language, to be better at managing their emotions and trusting themselves. Like there's a lot of focus that improv comedians and improv actors will put on just developing their brains. So they have more mm -hmm. quick thinking, more responsive, well-wired brains. Right. And that of course is very much like selling. It's probably honestly like the closest discipline to selling as far as, you know, what it takes to succeed sure, and how you should yep. practice it. Yep. Um, the other one that's a little bit less of a close match, but still worth mentioning, is martial artists, right? Martial artists, of course, don't know what's going to happen during a fight, but what they can do is practice each individual move over and over and over again until it's second nature, so that the moment their brain tells them in the action, it's time for this move, they can execute it flawlessly because they've done it many times. So there's no knowing which move you're going to call on during any match, but you know that whatever move you need, it's well rehearsed and it's going to be available to you. So similarly with salespeople, right? They can practice different types of questions and you're never sure which question you're going to need in the moment. But you know, when you get that tickle that says, ooh, we should ask more about the impacts here, you'll have no difficulty crafting up a question in the moment that effectively asks about the impacts because you've practiced it in advance. So you don't need predictability like you have in theater in order to practice the fundamental moves and that are involved mm -hmm. in performance. What I was just okay. going to quickly, so oh, sorry, you... and I was just going to quickly add, you know, I know how much, Andy, you talk about like all of the really, really powerful and important soft skills, like um, curiosity and, and listening, right, as sellers. And um, those skills we've found are A, really important for selling. Of course, that's no surprise. But B, those can actually be practiced outside of the context of your typical sales role play, right? Like we have opportunities to listen at sure. every moment in our lives and also have a lab uh, that we run in partnership with an, this, um, this amazing uh, trainer, Chris Williams, called Listening Fest, where we are creating a place for sellers to practice and grow their awareness of how deeply mm -hmm. they have the ability to listen and the impact that each of those levels of listening has on their partners. And we take them completely out of a sales right. role play and put them in the context of a real conversation, a kind of guided, structured conversation with their partners. So right. they develop that awareness of listening, have the experience of shallow, middle, deep listening, get that feedback from their partner of how crappy it felt to be listened to so poorly or how much safer that partner felt disclosing when they felt that, that the practicer was listening more deeply. And then that's, they, you know, they've gotten in their reps, they've developed that awareness, and that's something that they can bring right into their next sales conversations to be better listeners and to um, get more disclosure from their prospects. Right. So let's, let's distinguish practice from training. Mm. Can we do that? Let's do it. Okay. So if we do that, here's a question for you. Are salespeople overtrained? So I think it is an important distinction between practice and training. So, so the, the, the status quo in, in most sales training is that it's about sharing information, absorbing information. And there is so much incredible information, really good facts and talk tracks and approaches and methodologies to being a better seller. And in our sale, sales training industry, that, that is training. How do we then support sellers in taking the abundance of knowledge, paring it down, helping them to understand which are the most 
effective bits of information and then allowing them to try it on for size in service of their being able to do it more effectively on their calls. So I would say there is a lot of mm -hmm. training out there. But from my understanding, there's not nearly enough practice happening to help sellers take what they know and turn it into what they can do. Discuss. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I think I largely agree is, is that, you know, the, <laughs> the marginal value we get out of additional training of sellers in sort of the traditional sense, and it's not a knock on the content necessarily, it's, it's, but yeah, how many times can we train people on objection handling skills and, you know, product knowledge and so on? It's, there's a certain number of, certain set of things you need to know. But I think at some point, most sales training, and then a sort of metaphor I use, it's like, you know, pouring liquid into a full glass yeah. is, you know, enough is enough. It's full. The, what you're doing now is it's just overflowing and it has no value. And so, I, yeah, this, I said the marginal value, marginal utility of having one more training on objection handling is really pretty low. And so then you start saying, okay, well, to your point precisely about practice as in one dimension is, yeah, what else can we do to help people get better? Because, you know, we look at the sort of data on sales performance in general, and I know I harp on this a lot on the show, but in fact, it's not very good. Certainly in the software world, it's just not very good. And why is that? And I would contend it's because we're not helping people. I don't call it training, but not teaching and educating people about things that really matter. Well, I think it's even, you know, even if we are teaching them on things that matter, it's the implementation piece, right? What I've seen is that the assumption in sales is that the only thing someone needs to be successful is the right bit of knowledge put in their brain. Once that's done, boom, they have everything they need. But in reality, to take a new piece of knowledge and information and actually take action on it, there needs to be implementation, right? And of course, our favorite way to support people in implementation is practice. But truthfully, there's other ways you can reinforce that learning. Um, but one way or another, I think, you know, to your question of are salespeople overtrained, it's probably not the amount of training that's the problem. It's the ratio of new ideas being thrown at you to help implementing those ideas, right? Our, our industry is way out of balance with just throwing tons and tons of new ideas at people and not taking the time to follow up and help with the implementation and execution to make sure those new ideas actually make their way into the real world. Oh, yeah. I would, see, I would phrase it differently. Similar result at the end. I think we're throwing a lot of the same crap at them. Um, and and that's, that's part of the issue, right, is... Mm -hmm. is Sure, they know stuff, but yeah, I'm a firm believer that at the end of the day, it's it's not what you know, it's who you are that makes a difference in sales. And yeah, I think sellers, by and large, I mean, there's exceptions, but in most companies, they know that stuff. It's just to your point, how do I apply it? How do I apply it in a way that's authentic? How do I apply it that's aligned with who I am as a human being? in order to help me show up as the best version of myself. I think that's a really good point. That idea of like, how do I apply it in a way that's authentic to me? You know, that that's another place where there's often a mismatch in this gap between knowing and doing, like you read a talk track or you hear a uh, celebrity, you know, share the best, the best way to handle X objection 
or, you know, to, to position Y value prop. But coming out of you, yeah, I hate I hate those things. By the way, but anyway, yes, I mean, you know, these are, it's it's great to hear people people's opinions. But, but then it's like you try it on for size, and it's going to fall so flat unless you have the opportunity to make it your own. And the moment to experiment mm-hmm. with a brand new talk track or brand new approach probably isn't that next call with your prospect where the stakes feel high and revenue is on the line. So I think that you know there are a couple pieces. One. How do you not only translate knowing into doing, but how do you take the thing that you know and really make it feel like you, right? So that you feel comfortable trying it on for size and with your prospects and so that it lands well. And how do you help sellers move through the high stakes fear that's associated with trying something brand new? And, you know, for us, the the, the place where people get in there at bat so they don't feel so naked, really, right? Making making their very first attempt you know, come game time is in practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this, you know, these theories of horizontal development and vertical development of individuals. Um, Horizontal being sort of traditional skills-based development of individuals, vertical development being development of the more complex cognitive and emotional skills to be able to handle more complex situations. And yeah, I would contend that by and large, again, I'm sure there's lots of exceptions, but by and large, yeah, we do enough of the horizontal. We completely ignore the vertical. And this is what, yeah. in my mind, is really what separates sellers, those who are consistently successful, is yeah, there's more of the focus on, yeah, who they are as a human being. Uh, ability to think critically, think conceptually, um, you know, have greater emotional intelligence, have, be able to handle the, you know, the ambiguity that is inherent in sales. And those skills are much more decisive in the long run than, hey, can I handle an objection? You know what's interesting about that, though, Andy? Like, Jonathan and I have this shared belief, as I know you do, too, that the most effective sales skills just so happen to be the very best human skills. Like when you think about mm-hmm. objection handling or even, you know, the, the approach we, we take to it and it's, it, we're, we're not alone in this, you know, in our objection handling framework, we teach people upon receiving an objection to take a beat of gratitude, an internal beat of gratitude to literally connect with, with the gratitude that our prospect shared what was on their mind and was transparent rather than nodding and smiling and ghosting us. Right. Step one, gratitude. Step two, rewarding the transparency by welcoming them. Thank you so much for sharing that. Really glad you brought that up. Appreciate the transparency, right? Mm -hmm. And then the third step is to empathize with the context of their thing, with their thinking and the context of decision making. If they say the price is too high, really appreciate your sharing that. You know, it makes so much sense as you're thinking about a product like this that you want the price to be right, right? The reason that is such an effective thing to do before asking a question and digging in to learn more isn't because that's some like amazing sales technique that works every time. It's because at the moment of an objection, a prospect is usually feeling pretty resistant and pretty defended. And if we want to have any chance in hell at having a collaborative dialogue and opening their mind to the possibility of a new way mm-hmm. of thinking as a human being, the way to do that isn't with a counterpunch. It's to lower their defenses and make them feel seen. And that is hu- mm-hmm. being a good human being 101. 
And it's effective in sales yeah. because it's so effective in humanity. Yet there are some people that contend that, yeah, that's just not necessary. Right? The buyers don't really care that this whole idea of yeah, human connection is just, you know, superfluous. And yeah, I could, I could, I could quote, you know, thought leaders within the last few weeks that have posted that on LinkedIn. And it's just like, I think to myself, it's like, well, how'd you get to be so wrongheaded about the way humans interact with each other? I mean, this is, this is, this is a deeper seated issue. If you think that's really, <laughs> really the way humans interact, uh, what's going on in your life? Because that's not the real world. I mean, there's somebody not that long ago just told me, sellers, yeah, they don't need to be friendly. You don't need to be friendly. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> of course. I'm sure. Take a thousand examples, probably 2%. Maybe you don't need to be friendly. But you're dealing with humans. And there's, yeah, there's a new book out called Platonic about uh, adult relationships. <laughs> and and it, you bring the author brings up a point that, point that Robert Cialdini had brought up in his book, Persuasion, um, which is that people are more likely to do business with people they think like them, that they think, you know, like them as humans. <laughs> and it's like, so why wouldn't you be friendly? It costs you nothing. Yeah. Well, I think I, this, we're, unfortunately, I think we're contending with this in sales. This, 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 this undercurrent of, of people that are trying to, trying to talk to the audience and tell the audience what they think they want to hear, which is, yeah, I know you're not really comfortable, you know, making these connections and dealing at that level. So yeah, you don't need to, which is just dead wrong. Well, I think there's a long established history of the sales profession, ignoring the buyer's basic human needs in interest of finding these shortcuts to revenue and shortcuts to closing and shortcuts to higher dollar amounts, right? All. And, you know, of course I wasn't around selling 50 years ago, but, um, from reading the materials of the day, it does feel like a lot of sales training in the past and sales methodology in the past has centered the seller, the seller's needs and the seller getting what they want through whatever tricks necessary and kind of ignored the buyer's fundamental human needs to feel liked, to feel seen, heard and understood. Right. And well, I think actually, the result of this, make... I think ahead, the I'm result sorry. of this is that we're seeing more and more buyers try to find ways to avoid salespeople. Right? Like any company out there that gives you a way to buy the product without talking to salespeople, that's usually perceived as a plus by buyers, right? And it's like, that should be a real wake up call for our industry that buyers literally would love to just not talk to us at all. And they only talk to us because they're being forced to. That shows us that something's misaligned here. And again, if the sales profession was focusing on meeting buyers' basic human needs throughout the process, I don't think that would be the case. Yeah. And I, I well, a couple points. One is, um, yeah, I don't think the training 50 years ago was really geared towards just specifically what the seller needs. There's some, but I would say that, and I unfortunately say this for somebody that was <laughs> been in this business a really long time. I think the proportion of training that was, you know, seller focused as opposed to buyer focused about the same decades ago as it is now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that there's any greater enlightenment uh, flowed into the sales training space in the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I actually feel sort of the opposite. I mean, notwithstanding what you people are doing, but, but, you know, by the large, the issues that we've had as sellers have really become more pronounced more recently. And I think it's because 
whether through the advent of more technology into the selling or whatever, we've become more seller focused. And this is, this is again, an issue is not by and large, it's not being addressed in training. It's being reinforced thoughts. <laughs> I was going to say, I would agree with that. I think you said it quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the point was not to get agreement, but, but yeah, I just, that's why I like what, you guys are doing because it's it's different you're taking a different approach to it you're doing it in a way to set to help people become more of themselves by training and repetition and not just um sort of classic stage role play which i think again is relatively depending on how it's used is yeah can be have low utility for sellers but can we talk about role play for a sec andy Sure. So, so here's where, where we think that role play falls really short. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of ways it falls really short. However, one of the things that we've noticed is that your typical role play on a sales team happens at game speed. You, your, your partner's playing your prospect, you're playing the seller. And the idea is like, they raise an objection and you better fast come out with the right thing to say. Right. Or you're doing a demo for your man, you know, a mock demo for your manager. And it is like, you need to be perfect because the goal of the role play is to impress your leadership team to show them oh, yeah. how good oh, you yeah. are how smooth you are how worthy you are however that mm. is not how athletes and musicians approach their practice practice is a completely different pace rhythm there are completely different objectives in practice so role play can be fine especially uh, in some of these more predictable moments like objection handling, where you're probably going to hear now is on the right time or we don't have budget for this or whatever. You know, there are only so many objections under the sun. But rather than just as a seller who's practicing and trying to develop their skills, rather than having to like spit out the perfectly packaged response based on the thing that you just learned five minutes ago in a training, we really encourage people just like athletes and musicians to slow way down, receive the objection. Mm -hmm. Take that beat of gratitude. Feel the instinct inside your body to just rebut or counterpunch like you've been trained to do on your team. But then remember the different set of choices that you've been given and what we've just taught you. Welcome it. Empathize. Ask a question. Maybe there's a question that comes to mind and it's not quite fully formed. So you say, you're like, I'm kind of curious about, or maybe you ask a question, you realize, mm, that sounded salesy. I'm going to double back and make a correction. But the process of practice mm -hmm. is very different than the process of performance. And I think the sooner that sales leaders realize that and really capitalize on the practice space as the opportunity that it is to grow awareness and development, the more effective, quote unquote, role play will be. Yeah. But the, <laughs> the issue in most organizations is sales managers don't take the time to coach so, you know, if you look at the, the reports that come out, you know, there's this huge discrepancy between how much time managers think they spend coaching and how much time sellers report that they actually receive coaching. So if you're really going to integrate practice into, into sort of a process within an organization, is they really have to rethink it almost from the beginning of how are we onboarding people? How are we training people? How are we educating people? How are we, you know, upskilling them on a continuous basis? Because it's hard to see 
<laughs> most sales leaders would be able to fit practice into what they're doing now. Or let's say there'd be resistance on their part to do that. You speak to a big systematic problem in our industry. However, for any team that is already doing role play, if you do one thing different that can have a powerful impact, just slow it down, period. And you've got yourself a more meaningful practice experience that can lead to better growth than the thing you're doing today. And then you can think about overhauling your well, entire permit yourself. Pardon? Yeah. What you're saying is give yourself the option to stop. Stop. Correct. Screw up. Double back. Right. Ask your partner right. for feedback. Don't feel like you have to go through the whole transaction. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And practice smaller pieces at a time. Right. You know, mm -hmm. um, I've been in some companies that did a little bit of role playing and they were like, all right, role play the whole demo. And that was what people had to do. Yeah. And of course, there no, was there was <laughs> the problem Jordana mentioned of we weren't expected to do this for sake of improvement. We were expected to do this for the sake of proving how good we were. But even outside of that, yeah, we were expected to do the whole thing at once. And it's like Check a box. how much how much can you really accomplish as far as like meaningful feedback, meaningful improvements when you've got the whole performance in front of you at once <laughs> to give feedback on and to make improvements on. Oh, and then if you're a a seller with any sort of degree of curiosity you'll want to ask a question at some point in there. And that's not in the, that's not in the role play. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had a, a coaching client who, who got to a final interview stage at a company and they said, you know, we want you to, I forget it was a discovery call or a first call, but involved, like must've been a first call or something, but it involved a presentation he had to, he had to give. And he had called me for advice and, and said, you know, what should I do? I said, well, first of all, shit can the presentation, just go in and ask questions of the prospect, you know, make sure you understand, don't go in and, and presume that, uh, you understand what they want. Cause I think you're being set up <laughs> and a good news. He got the job, he got the job offer, which he ended up not taking, but B is he was permitting, excuse me, presenting to these VPs they were completely flummoxed by him setting aside the presentation and treating it as a discovery call. <laughs> that was, it was pretty interesting. They just wanted to see, yeah, could he do this? Not, could he actually execute a successful sales call? Yeah. Turning. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that focus, <laughs> that focus on selling as pitching and sales enablement teams, focusing their efforts on, we got to teach our team how to pitch better. And that's the answer to how to sell better. And obviously that's not how yeah. I see it. <laughs> well, it's not how, not how buyers see it. So, I mean, it's, <clears throat> there's some data I've seen recently about based on thousands of win loss analyses, interviews about why people buy and why they don't. So it's sort of summarized as why you win big deals, why you lose big deals. <sighs> yeah. Primarily across there are 18 reasons given nine, why you win nine, why you lose. Uh, the vast majority of them were all about the human element of selling, making a connection, you know, how you were interacted with the buyer responsiveness. You know, none of that was product price or functionality. No, we still, we still, yeah, the product price functionality, the buyer gets from website. They don't need you for that. And to your point earlier, Jonathan, but I don't think, buyers are being forced necessarily to talk to sellers. I think, <laughs> I think the self-aware buyer knows they need to talk to a seller. They need somebody to ask them questions they don't know to ask themselves. 
But if you show up and you're just pitching when they have that whole separate need, yeah, then they don't have time for you. There's a practicable skill there, Andy. I feel, Jonathan, like this is just like a great mm-hmm. tee-up to talk about something like anchor questions. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> so, you know, we just talked, you know, in, in theory about the idea of breaking it down to smaller pieces. Don't practice the whole demo at once. But to give some folks an idea mm-hmm. specifically what this can look like is we found that how much a particular feature resonates with and excites a buyer, how well that buyer remembers that feature after the demo and how effectively that buyer, you know, conveys the value prop to their team has much less to do with the exact words you say when showing the feature and a lot more to do with how you tee it up in advance, right? And then how you close it, I guess, close it down afterwards and what kind of questions you ask afterwards. So specifically, we found that the best thing you can do before showing a feature is either make a statement or even better, ask a question that really brings that problem forefront to the prospect's mind. Ask the question of your prospect that will get them talking about a particular problem or challenge they have right before you show them the better way to do it. And then don't just move on. Take a moment there to take a beat and ask them a question to get them thinking about, now that they've seen the solution, what do they think about the solution? Where would the solution fit? Who would the solution help? What impact would the solution have? So mm-hmm. I've often found in watching demos of top reps and bottom performing reps in, you know, in companies I've worked at, there's not a huge difference in the words they use to describe the feature. The big difference is the context they set to bring that problem front and center to someone's mind right before you solve it for them. And then the after work, where after you've shown them a solution, you give them a chance to share their thoughts and to think through it and to process what they just saw and to really connect the dots between what they just saw and their worlds and their problems and the value it'll have to them. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if this person's going to buy, they're going to need to build a pretty strong business case, drawing the connections between what your offering does and their world, Mm -hmm. their needs, their problems. And if you just Mm -hmm. do a a feature dump and leave, you're relying on your prospect to form that connection and that value prop without your help an hour or two hours or seven days maybe after they saw the demonstration. And that's a hard time to do it. So why not carve out the time right after you showed them the feature to ask them those questions to get them thinking about how it connects to their world, who would use it, when it would be used, how it would help. Mm -hmm. Right then in the moment, with the help of you to guide them by asking the right questions, and while the memory of what they just saw is fresh in their mind. So those are discrete, practicable skills where you can say, okay, show me the feature, but now ask me a question to get me talking about how it would show up in my world. Or you can practice the beginning part and say, okay, don't show me the feature yet. Give me some context first, then show me the feature. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. can just practice those moments, right? You don't have to practice the whole 20-minute demo to go. You can just practice those discrete moments of how you tee it up and how you kind of connect the dots afterwards. And those are, you know, that's a great example of how to zoom in on a demo and really create meaningful behavior change. Yeah, no, I like that. That's you know interesting, interesting approach. And the, what you're doing when you do that, hopefully, if it's done appropriately, is you make that moment more memorable for the buyer. Because mm-hmm. one of the problems with, especially, let's say, yeah, somebody's buying a particular software package and they they talk to six vendors, they see six demos. I can guarantee you that after they've seen all six demos, they can't remember by and large who's doing, who's <laughs> right. doing what. Yeah. And yeah. so if you don't have, as you just talked about, you know, if you don't have a way to stand out and make what you're saying and how you interact with the buyer and the things that they're taking away from it, 
one, two, three pieces of, of insight that they didn't have before, if you don't have that to be more memorable, yeah, you they might just forget it. You just be blended in with everybody else. And anything you They'll say, forget it or they will never have even understood on the front end why it mattered. Sorry, Jordana, I didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I was just connection. I cut you off. I was just going to say that anything you say about the value of what you've just shown them will be far more powerful if we can get our prospect to say it, <laughs> our prospect to articulate it, which is where questions come in. We can say, so this feature could help your world in X, Y, and Z way. But if we can ask them a question mm-hmm. to get them to specifically articulate it, to articulate how they see this feature living and breathing and helping their world, then it will stick. Then the value is 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 clearer in yeah, their mind, and they'll be better at communicating it internally when there are other stakeholders as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, hundred percent. I mean, that's I wrote about that in my book as well. So you got to bring it into their world, put them in the picture frame. We're on the same page about most things. They're in the Andy. picture frame. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. See, great minds, great minds. Um, well, last last sort of question for you is is more bigger picture. So if you were in charge of an, an enablement budget for an organization of some size and you had to sort of allocate the money between training, practice, content, coaching, uh, how would you do that? What, what are the percentages you would invest and including the training both for reps and separately for frontline managers? You take this one, Jonathan. I've got to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I don't know about uh, budget, but as far as like emphasis, um, I think the three areas of emphasis would need to be, of course, the upfront training, right? The, the learning piece of the equation. Then I do think the practice element has to be pretty heavy. I would say that more time and money should be spent on practice than training, just because you can take a one-hour training and it could take you 10 hours to implement it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there should definitely be you know, if you want me to make up numbers here, let's say 50% of time and emphasis on practice, 25% is on learning, I'd say. And then the remaining 25% of time and budget should be spent on kind of the coaching, which is like the tailored feedback on your attempts. So as you leave the practice arena and start trying these behaviors on for for real and real selling situations, it can take an experienced hand to watch that recording with you and say, I see what you're trying to do here, but let me give you some nuance here about how to apply the skill in the wild that would have helped you in this situation. So I'd say 25 learning it up front, that's training, 50% of time and a budget on practice, and then 25% mm-hmm. on the reinforcing and coaching and kind of fine tuning uh, that happens when people start trying the behavior on for size. God, that's a good answer. <laughs> okay, well, we, we, can, we, can, we can live with that answer. So I guess really the, now the last question perhaps is, is, let's look at this in the context of onboarding. I was just reading something this morning on LinkedIn about onboarding. And, you know, it's doing this math equation. Well, if you can onboard your sellers to, you know, productivity one month faster than you were before, then, you know, average seller, you know, generates you know, X amount per month with hitting their numbers. Wow, that's, you know, an extra, in this case, I think it was like $3 million for, for the organization. And I was thinking, we've really got this whole thing screwed up, right? Because in... In onboarding, I'm sure there's not enough practice time at all. But secondly, we also have this myth, this idea there's this mythical state of readiness that somehow we can accelerate that to capture that 
suppose an extra gain in this first year of a seller's presence, that somehow that correlates to those sellers actually being good at what they do. And I always wondered how much companies are sacrificing by accelerating onboarding in terms of, because I've never seen the data, and I'm sure no one's, I'm sure no one has, but I haven't seen it, is, okay, you know, if we hurry our reps through onboarding, what's the impact on their long-term performance? Are they are they better or are they worse than they would be if we took another two months or three months to onboard them and built practice time into it? Um, and I think, you know, we're so focused, we, SAS in particular, so focused on this onboarding period, completely unmindful of what the longer-term impacts may be. Yes, we may get some short-term revenue gains from onboarding them in five months as opposed to six months, but a year down the road, everybody's left the company. And we're worse off than if we just spent another you know, two to three months and made people feel better trained and better prepared to go out and actually do the job and they'd stick around. I, you know, I think it's interesting in that, to, in my experience, the almost the only practice that ever happens on a team is on onboarding and then that's the end of it. So, that, so that's the, and it's usually through, through like game time role play. Um, but the second piece is that we are one of the only performance-based disciplines that trains you up for say five weeks and then just never returns to your skill development again. I mean, Tiger Woods is still practicing. <laughs> Michael Jordan, I mean, these top athletes, these top musicians practice every day. So to my mind, mm-hmm. it's about, I mean, you know, and this can feel like a big lift, but again, there can be these small wins, some of what we've talked about, but like, is to build a culture of practice. It's just to, <laughs> to build a culture where practicing is just part of what happens that, you know, you you have practice partners and and pe- you know peer to peer practice partners and you're just meeting up periodically to refine first to identify the team needs to identify the shared vocabulary of small practicable skills that put together make a really big impact right on the effectiveness of selling mm-hmm. and then just rotate practice sessions around them kick off your team meetings with you know some <laughs> some practice rounds right and it becomes this opportunity for reps to just consistently check in on how their skills are doing, right? Continue to refine them, continue to deepen them. And one of the amazing, amazing benefits of practice that we didn't even get to talk about, Andy, is around what a powerful cultural transformer it can be. Because when you Mm -hmm. give your reps a safe place, and really your whole team should be that safe place, but a safe place to show up and mess up and ask for feedback and try things on for size and take risks and experiment, what that adds up to, and there are academic papers that, that correlate these what they're called learning behaviors to psychological Mm -hmm. safety which is the gold standard of what makes for happy and high-performing teams so Mm -hmm. what we're proposing is is practice is a great tool for skill development that's happening all the time not just in the first five weeks and helping leaders to recognize just how powerful uh you know how powerfully transformative building a culture of practice can be for team culture as well yeah. Excellent. Okay. All right. Well, I ended on that. So, uh, Jordana, Jonathan, thank you for joining me. That was great. So if people want to learn more about the practice lab or connect with you, what should they do? Uh, so we're, we're both quite active on LinkedIn. Uh, our website is thepracticelab.co. Andy, when is this going to air? Do you think? Cause that, that'll change our CTA. <laughs> when is this gonna air? All right, so we'll get a little dead air here where Andy no, checks that's okay. that. Uh, uh, 
Let's see. This would be the Thursday after Thanksgiving. So early December. Good. So anyone who's curious to uh, apply for this program, we will be kicking off uh, our next cohort in January 2023. Applications will be open when this airs, and you can apply at thepracticelab.co. But if you're curious, interested, intrigued to try this approach on for size every month, third Wednesday of each month, we offer a free and super fun practice-based training called the Wheel of Objections. And you can sign up on our LinkedIn pages or on the website as well. All right. Cool. Well, both of you, thank you very much. Always fun. So fun, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for the chat. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guests, Jordana Zeldin and Jonathan Mann, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.